Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today we are starting with a newer title for our time back. Um, we're going back to 2017, so not that long ago. Coming on to about five years or so on that, too. A modern day classic Nintendo title. I love Breath of the Wild so much, and if you haven't, please go back and listen to our Skyward Sword stuff, because I feel like so much about the Skyward Sword game really led into the development of Breath of the Wild and Mm -hmm. made it the game that it was. Obviously a very, very great classic installment within the Zelda series, but also just what a way to kick off the Nintendo Switch. It absolutely was, and really for me, there's not really another title from any developer that can make you excited to jump in and have a whole new experience like Mario and like Zelda. Sure, there's been some stinkers that people don't really enjoy or or per se, I should say there's more niche to those. But when it comes to like Breath of the Wild and even like Mario Odyssey, it's insane what the two teams have done to reignite and redevelop kind of the same idea but on a whole new platform with a whole new scale and so we're going to deep dive into breath of the wild today what it took for them to create it how it was supposed to be like a wii u game that was like "Eh, let's put on this new stuff because this doesn't really work (laughs) for it and how other devs and how other games are taking insight from it yeah it's it's interesting just to hear a little bit about what you what was it that inspired them to make breath Mm -hmm. of the wild beyond skyward sword of course you know having a good experience having like a good open world game drawing inspiration from some titles that you could probably recognize where the inspiration came from Mm -hmm. i think you say it best when it's when we talk about a mario series when we talk about uh a legend of zelda game it's hard i think to have these long standing series i mean the original legend of zelda came out in 1986 and to still have that series going on i mean we're talking about nintendo titles like they're the uh the fast and furious of the video <laughs> yeah. gaming world they just don't seem to go away and mm-hmm. that's so rare within games and i don't think we talk about that enough so uh, 100% agree with you. Like, for them to still have the passion to want to make these games better for these characters and to still be successful at it is really cool. Absolutely. So let's dive into it. The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild is a 2017 action adventure game 
developed and published by Nintendo for the Nintendo Switch and Wii U consoles. Breath of the Wild is the 19th, here it, 19 installment of the Legend of Zelda franchise and is set at the end of the Zelda timeline, which had recently been established in the Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. The player once again controls Link, who awakens from a hundred-year slumber to a dysfunctional Hyrule and must defeat Calamity Ganon in order to restore a once-great kingdom. Similar to the original 1986 Legend of Zelda game, players are given little instruction and can explore the world freely. Tasks include collecting various items and gear to aid in objectives such as puzzle solving or side quests. The world is unstructured and designed to encourage exploration and experimentation, and the main story quest can be completed in a nonlinear fashion. So very much like your other open world games like Skyrim, you can go do side quests, you can just mess around and find secrets, and then eventually make your way back to the story at hand. Well, and, and very cool because in that original NES game, for those who haven't played it, I mean, you can skip around to different mm-hmm. dungeons and whatever else. Um, if you haven't played that game, I do recommend doing it, even if you do it with a guide or something like that, because sure. the experience is really cool and you can see the influences on the Legend of Zelda series uh, just as a whole. But to be able to have this game where if you don't want to go and do every single quest just to get to the end, where it starts to feel a little monotonous, if you feel like you have the skill, the ability to beat the final boss, you can go and do that. And a lot of people have challenged themselves to do that as fast as possible with as little Mm -hmm. protection as possible. So it makes for a really interesting and replayable game. It absolutely does. And like you said, I mean, you can even skip quests just to go to the end. You know, they've built that in there to where, like, if you do a lot of the quests that are main story quests, it makes the final battle easier. Or if you're just feeling like, hey, I'm going to go rush for it, you basically, all those mini bosses or bosses, let's say, that you'd have to fight originally in these different areas, you have to fight all at once, one at a time, but you have to fight through all of them to get to the final boss. So it, it definitely creates a really cool idea of making a story that is linear per se but changing where you jump into that timeline. I mean, uh, maybe you're just playing the game. You're like, hey, uh, Ganon, sorry, man. I was just having a quick nap, but <laughs> let me show you what's up really fast. I had to go make some apples and some mushrooms to make a little <laughs> stew. Chant that up. We're ready to go, baby. Which, like, oh, it's so gross. So <laughs> gross. Have you ever eaten apples and mushrooms together? I have not. But listen. That's why, you don't, that's why you're not getting that stamina boost. That's what it's all for. <laughs> is that what it is? That's why I'm lethargic. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so development of Breath of the Wild took place over five years. Wanting to rethink the conventions of the series, Nintendo introduced elements such as a true open world and a more detailed, responsive graphics engine. Monolith Soft, known for their work on the open world Xenoblade Chronicles series, assisted in designing landscaping and world design. The game was originally planned for release in 2015 as a Wii U exclusive, but was delayed twice. Released in March 3rd, 2017, Breath of the Wild was a launch game for the Nintendo Switch and the final Nintendo-published game for the Wii U. Two waves of DLC were released throughout 2017 in an expansion pass to give players a bit more of a challenge and just a bit more content. 
Absolutely. And and what a launch title it was. I mean, this was a, a big reason why I decided to get the Nintendo Switch because there weren't a lot of games. I mean, there was Mario Kart, which mm-hmm. was essentially just a repurpose Wii U version. And yeah. people have complained about that for a long time. But Breath of the Wild, I know, was drawing people toward the Nintendo Switch. What a, a great decision to make that just the launch title for this console. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about a bit later how for the first few months of sales, it was a 100% attach rate, meaning that if someone bought a Switch, they were guaranteed buying Breath of the Wild. And I've even read that more Breath of the Wild copies were sold than Switch consoles. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't 100% know if how that tracks if people return games, you know, bought duplicates or whatever else. But yeah, very cool. So about the studio, we know Nintendo. And if you want to know more, you can go back and listen to our Skyward Sword episode. Like I mentioned, I I think that that has a lot of great details just about the more recent entries in the Zelda series. But Nintendo Entertainment Planning and Development Division, or Nintendo EPD, is the largest division within the Japanese video game company Nintendo. The division focuses on developing and producing video games, mobile apps, and other related entertainment software for the company. The division was created on September 16, 2015, after the consolidation of two of Nintendo's former software divisions, Entertainment Analysis and Development, or EAD, to which Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka originally belonged, and Software Planning and Development, or SPD, as part of a company-wide organizational restructure that took place under Nintendo's then-newly-appointed president, Tatsumi Kimishima. The division assumed both of the predecessors' roles, focusing on the development of games and software for Nintendo platforms and mobile devices. It also manages and licenses the company's various intellectual properties alongside producing and supervising development for external studios. So very much so what a lot of other studios have done, whether it's EA, whether it's Microsoft, they've consolidated into like one department to handle everything. Instead of having because we've seen that with a lot of Japanese developers, Nintendo, Konami, and a couple others, that they would have separate divisions working on separate games. And sometimes you have to pull someone from here if you were struggling. So they just went, all right, we're going to put it all into one and it'll all be under that one house. Right. And especially with Nintendo, there were just certain people within the development team that were more skilled than others. So whenever they ran into issues early on within their games, they were having to pull people back and forth to make corrections within those games. And so it just started to make sense to combine the teams and have them focus on specific projects. But you see a lot of the development within Nintendo uh, share development, share mm-hmm. these these creative minds that are able to focus in on these long-running series and continue them on the path that they're originally designed for while making just good design changes because they're able to not only use their experience and their skills, but to just keep the history of the, the series intact. And so that's what makes, I think, Nintendo games unique and makes them a really good game development company. It does. And so as we break into it, you'll see what Nintendo did to, again, take these same frameworks and same idea of these beloved series, but change it and adapt it in a new way that you still feel like you're playing a 1986 title, just super updated. So according to series producer I.G. Ayanuma, the development team aimed to rethink the conventions of Zelda. 
with development starting immediately upon the release of The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword in 2011. Ayanuma received comments from players who wished to see a more interconnected map to explore the locales between the gameplay areas. So instead of having pockets, or the best way to describe this, if you've played Wind Waker, you have these different squares that you go to. They have different islands or different dungeons. Yes, it's kind of connected, but you have to go to each in their own separate area. And he wanted kind of like a whole open world that didn't necessarily need loading. You just kind of went. And you kind of see that even going all the way back to Ocarina of Time, where you mm-hmm. had that big open field. But if you wanted to go to the uh, fire temple or the water temple, you had to go off into this own your own little like different part of the map, and that would load in and be different. And people were looking for something that was a little bit more fluid. Sure, because you already had open world games at the time. Again, Skyrim. Again, anything that was kind of Oblivion esque, it was open. There were again places you had to load, but those were subsets. Whereas you could just explore everything outside in that open world. Yeah. So, so in 2013, Nintendo revisited Zelda's non-linear gameplay in the 3DS title, The Legend of Zelda, A Link Between Worlds, which was pretty well received. At E3 2014, Ayanuma said he planned to reform dungeons and puzzles, two of the series' major gameplay elements, and redesign the game to allow players to reach the end without progressing through the story. As Nintendo had never developed a modern open-world game on the scale of Breath of the Wild, they looked at Skyrim to learn more about the challenges of making a modern, large-scale, open-world game. For the art style, the development team drew inspiration from various Japanese anime, which they had grown up watching. Series protagonist Link was redesigned for the game, with Ayanuma purposefully making him more gender-neutral so that players could easily relate more to him. And you can see that not only within the design, but within certain missions in the game, mm-hmm. there's a city that requires uh, you to change clothes to, to dress as a woman. So there are certain elements within, and, and Link is able to pass as a woman then to get into the city. So I think that they pulled that off really well. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you played the Legend of Zelda Link Between Worlds, but... It's certainly, it, it's very reminiscent of, like, Majora's Mask. Okay. In that it's it's this game where you're kind of having to swap back and forth between this real world and this world where you're sort of like a painting in a way, and you're jumping yeah, yeah, back yeah. and forth. It's It's like A Link to the Past as well in that aspect, where there's just certain time frames. It's something that they've used within Zelda games in the past, to bring mm-hmm. that idea back into Breath of the Wild, I, I think is a good choice because it's not totally unfamiliar to the Zelda players. No, and, and having it on a l- smaller scale per se, because it is a handheld console, it's not sold that often, to be able to have that as a test bed and see that that's well received, like, okay, let's take the idea of that and roll with it on a much larger scale. Before full development, Nintendo designed a playable 2D prototype similar to the original Zelda to experiment with physics-based puzzles. At the 2017 Game Developers Conference, director Hitamaro Fujibayashi, technical director Takuhiro Doda, and art director Satoru Takazawa held a presentation titled Change and Constant, Breaking Conventions with the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, where they demoed the prototype. 
Ayanuma called the physics engine in Breath of the Wild a major development for the Zelda series, saying that it underpins everything in the world and makes things operate in a logical and realistic way, allowing players to approach puzzles and problems in different ways. He expanded on the difficulty in developing the system, recalling how one day during development he entered an area in the game and found that all the objects had been blown away by the wind. And you can see that still a little bit when there's like just a pumpkin on the ground or an apple, something that Link drops. It it just sometimes it just blows away in a strong wind. And, and this this 2D prototype was pretty fantastic because it looked like, again, an updated version of 1986, whereas you still had like the little octo enemies, you were still kind of swiping in front of you but added these elements such as shooting an arrow through fire to light a forest on fire. You get, then get logs. You could push the logs into the water. You could have enemies traverse with that. And they tested all of these things out. And with Ayanuma uh, stating in, in one of the videos that they did this behind the scenes with, he's like, yeah, we're now realizing we have a lot to work on if we're going to do something <laughs> like this, like in that realm that we've never really grasped with in a 3d huge realm so it's going to be an undertaking it is kind of crazy to think about uh, especially with the fire weapons where you could have a Mm -hmm. fire weapon and now that had that had been something that existed within the old games of course in ocarina of time you take one of the the sticks light it on fire use that to light a torch now you can light these little patches of grass on fire and if a strong enough wind comes by now the wind has caught you on fire if you kill an enemy near a fire they catch on fire Mm -hmm. you know and and you have to be aware of that danger so there's definitely a lot of elements going on there that i think they did a really great job of implementing for breath of the wild oh yeah as previous zelda games increased the amount of actions link could perform the development team realized that having too many actions would complicate the controls So instead of adding more actions, they increased the number of events the player could interact with in the world. The game was built and demonstrated with touchscreen features for the Wii U, but the developers found that looking back and forth between the gamepad and the screen distracted from the game, and these features were removed. The Wii U gamepad also affected animation. Although Link is canonically left-handed, he is right-handed in the game to match the gamepad's control scheme which has its sword-swinging buttons on its right side, something that was carried over and somewhat of a point of contention in Skyward Sword, which, of course, you use the Wii Remote to Mm -hmm. operate the sword and the shield and all those things as well. Now, the Switch version performs better than the Wii U release when docked to a television, although when undocked, both run at the same resolution. The Switch version also had higher-quality environmental sounds. Takizawa cited the Jomon period, the earliest era of Japanese history, as an inspiration for the ancient Shika technology and architecture that is found in the game. Due to the mystery surrounding it from, you know, Western countries not really knowing history of Japan, so like, we'll do this really cool period and put it in there and kind of give it its own feel. The game's landscape was based on locations in and around Kyoto, the hometown of game director Fujibayashi, and was partially designed by Monolith Soft, who assisted with the topographical level design. The game's initial area was made a plateau so that players can see the world's expansive environments, and it did so well. That first opening title screen, when you, when you make your way out of basically the healing tomb, 
and you start to run and you get to that cliffside and it pans up and gives you breath of the wild. And you just see the expanse. Like that was such, and those, those moments in gaming are hard to get. It was such a jaw dropping moment that was so cinematic and it gave breath to that wild Ooh. and it gave just depth to the game. Like you'd see so far, you see like, Basically, Hyrule and like all of its calamity going on, but these beautiful forests and other areas. It was beautiful. Yeah. And I think this one did the tutorial right, where mm-hmm. sometimes you play games that are great, fantastic games, but the way that they handhold you throughout the, the rest of the game is difficult. I think this one did a good job of just having you on this little plateau to learn a few things, learn the new controls, learn about Mm -hmm. what kind of enemies you're going to be facing, what kind of things you can be doing. And then it sends you off once you're finally ready. And you can do pretty much anything from that point, like go and get yourself killed by a guardian, or you can hide and do whatever you need to do. But having that plateau there and having you kind of locked in for the beginning of the game, I think was the right choice. You're 100% correct on that, because if you if you look at it, like you said, like getting exposed to some of the enemies, some of like the smaller guardians, some of the moblins, and then also that there's fruit. You get a woodcutting axe, you can chop trees. There's cold, so there's going to be weather technology that affects your health, and you have to make sure you're ready for those things. And it started that off, like even in those basic little scenarios, it hit you off right there, as well as starting to introduce you to some of the tech you're going to have with the Sheikah Slate. And some of like Link's abilities that kind of awaken with it. It's such a, like you said, such a great tutorial that to me never felt that way. It just felt like, okay, cool. We're going to do these things. Oh, awesome. We get off this plateau. Finally, we get this cool, you know, glider that helps us go around to do these things. Done so well. Yeah. And not only that, Breath of the Wild was the first main Zelda game to use voice acting and cutscenes. And although Link remains a silent protagonist, you do get these full voiceovers for a lot of these characters that is done so well. And Ayanuma was affected by the first time he heard a character with a human voice in-game and wanted to leave a similar impression on players. The team decided to record voiceovers for all cutscenes instead of only key scenes, as originally planned. Nintendo provided voiceovers and subtitles in eight languages, with Ayanuma stating, quote, People from Europe often tell me if a game doesn't support their language, their children can't play it without help. So we wanted to do our best to support more languages so that those people and their children could properly understand and enjoy the game. Initially, players were not able to mix and match the languages of voices and subtitles, but Nintendo released an update in May of 2017 that allowed players to choose the voiceover language as as well as the subtitles. After five years of development, the game went gold on February 3rd, 2017, with Nintendo holding a wrap party to celebrate. Coinciding with the game's launch in Taiwan and South Korea in early 2018, Nintendo introduced a patch worldwide adding traditional and simplified Chinese and Korean translations for the Nintendo Switch version. And it's something that I think I take for granted so much because uh, the U.S. market is obviously very desirable for a lot of video gaming companies. Mm-hmm. And so you don't think too much about having the accessibility within these games, but them making, you know, knowing and understanding the importance of taking this one silent protagonist and adding in new voiceover work for this 
game in a, a long time silent series you know to to do that right and make sure that it's as accessible as possible just goes to show where Nintendo's thought processes can be really careful in particular. Yeah, like you said, go especially for most Nintendo games where your protagonist not necessarily is silent but doesn't talk. We'll give some wahoos or some yays or you know more guttural things that are understood by everyone and less of having it be very region locked in terms mm-hmm. of language barriers. And I think that's why Nintendo, even though I know a lot of people have gripes, whether it's graphics, whether it's simplification of gameplay, you have characters that you can read. If you can read it, they're not going to have to do VO. Like You can feel connected to all these different characters and not feel ostracized from it. And I think now adding this and them understanding that was fantastic. Well, and I think Nintendo characters, too, have this unique characterization where we're not necessarily trying to be them we are trying Mm -hmm. to just play as them i feel like a lot of modern video games are trying to engulf you in the characterization of the protagonist sure and so now there's been these series that have been running since the mid 80s you know i'm not trying to be link as much as maybe i was when i was a kid maybe there are kids now that uh, this is their first game and it's more approachable to them, and they are able to connect. So sure. I feel like it works well for all generations of gamers, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's a smart decision by them for these long-running series where they're just able to kind of think about if you're a longtime fan or you're a new fan for the very first time, Nintendo does it so well where they just think about, like, what is the experience going to be, and how can I make this as approachable for anyone as possible yeah and again they they did such a fantastic job with it and it's interesting to see the iterations that it went through um there's there's two major trailers i would say that really got people sparked for this game the first one being at e3 2014 with the not secret title but kind of the working title being zelda wii u that's originally what it was going to be called for the time being, until they got a working title for it. And it was very interesting, because as we had said, it was originally just going to be a Wii U exclusive. It was kind of going to be the end of the life with it, and f- something that followed Skyward Sword. And so in this one, you have the first look at this expansive environment. And I think it's more beautiful than we've really seen, because we've jumped through different art styles for Zelda, but nothing that was um, modernly so picturesque, mm-hmm. that was painterly. And we get this first view of it. And it's also the first time that we get a view of a guardian, which in the trailer was uh, luckily much quicker and much more intense than the guardians are actually in the game. Because can you imagine like if they had stuck with that design and having to fight these really quick guardians? That's one of the hardest parts. We'll talk about the the DLC later, but Mm -hmm. one of the hardest parts about like the master mode of Breath of the Wild was just having to adapt to these more powerful guardians. I can't imagine playing through that game, you know, talking about accessibility again, playing that game with their original plan for the guardians. I think a lot of people would have got frustrated and quit. Yeah, because they were they were seen, at least in this video, which shows Link um, on a horse trying to escape this guardian who's just sprinting through forests and temples, like crashing stuff over, like rapid firing laser beams into him. And then he ends it 
with them showing off the light arrows um, or these guardian arrows as, as a new thing. And it was a very cool and very amazing trailer to see it start. Um, Cause they were trying to say like, we wanted to do something different than these other games that were linear or very boxy in a way and make it expansive. And so over many years of development, we come to 2017 after a lot of those delays and we get the launch trailer at E3 2017, which then shows off so much more of the tech shows off the switch, just shows off everything that's coming out with it. And really, I guess, second sold people in the Zelda game that everyone spent years just pining over and being like, this is the one I asked for forever. And I remember seeing Link firing that arrow and being like, mm-hmm. oh, oh man, I have to get this game. This is fantastic. Oh yeah. Just the the epic nature of that trailer. It, it, one of the best things Nintendo's done as far as promoting a game for sure. Yeah. So with those trailers, of course, they released the standard version of the game at 59.99 USD. There were also some special editions. There was a $100 version special edition. It was a copy of the game. Came with a relic of Hyrule, Calamity Ganon Tapestry and a weather-worn map. Came with a Sheikah Slate carrying case, a 24-song soundtrack on CD, and Sheikah Eye collectible coin. And I remember seeing that carrying case. There was someone Mm -hmm. that I worked with that used to bring his Switch to work and uh, play that on his breaks. And it was was pretty cool. I was jealous of that, for sure. Oh, yeah. Of course, there was the Master Edition, which came with a Master Sword statue. Also very jealous of people who got that. And then there was a Japan-only exclusive Deluxe Collector's Edition, which was 13,870 yen, or basically 140 US dollars. It was a copy of the game, an alternate cover. It had the Relic of Hyrule Calamity Ganon Tapestry, the worn map, the official soundtrack, an amiibo of Link on horseback, a Master Sword statue, and four collector's postcards. Uh, so for like 10 bucks more per se, like you get a lot more than that Master Edition of just like, because you get everything from the special for the Masters, but you get like the Link amiibo, which was sold out immediately. You get like all yeah. these amazing stuff. Like that's, that's the way to do it. Oh, man. And those Amiibos at the time. Nintendo has gotten a lot better about the Amiibos mm-hmm. now. They're still not great, still not perfect. But at the time, I, I remember this being a very, very big problem and a, a point of genuine frustration and uh, certainly, I think, a justifiable frustration Absolutely. for fans of Nintendo and Zelda. And in addition to the collector's edition, they also released a new Princess Zelda amiibo for this game at the same time of the release. Yeah, and, and those were all the release ones. Nintendo obviously went on to make even more. Um, all four of kind of the Guardian Protectors, or basically the people that you meet from each of these four different kingdoms. They all got their own amiibo. There were several others for like Moblins and others in the game. And then, Derek, I'll have you talk a bit more, because you're, you're more Amiibo than I am, about just what they could do in-game and, and why you would want to collect them. Because not only would Breath of the Wild Amiibos work, so would Skyward Sword, so would Ocarina of Time stuff, so would Super Smash Bros. ones. Like, anything that was Zelda worked. I do have a few Amiibos, Alex. You are correct. Just a few. It's Actually, I think I counted my collection recently, and it's around 150. Just a few. So, just a few. 
So what was great and unique, I think, about the Breath of the Wild amiibo uh, abilities is that anything that was Legend of Zelda related was giving you in-game content. And this was mm-hmm. the, the point where fans started to get frustrated because it was so hard to find these amiibos. They released a ton of them. I believe it was for the 30th anniversary of The Legend of Zelda. And yes. so they released all these separate links from Skyward Sword, Ocarina of Time, uh, Twilight Princess, the they, original they 1986 yeah. Legend of Zelda. And so they, they were trying to release these amiibos from all these various uh, iconic Zelda titles. There's far more than that. Obviously, we said this was the 19th. There weren't 19 amiibos, but enough to where, you know, they they hit all the high marks, I, I think, within the within Link and within the Legend of Zelda series. So what would happen is you would scan these amiibos into the game and you had a chance at collecting a piece of armor that would gift you a, first of all, more powerful armor to start the game and also a mm-hmm. look unique to the style of the amiibo that you had bought. So if you had the Ocarina of Time amiibo, within Breath of the Wild, you could get an Ocarina of Time outfit, and you could look just like Link did in that game, but in the more modern setting. And Wind Waker as well, the original Legend of Zelda as well. You could also get weapons from those games. So while the original Legend of Zelda from 1986 did not have a Master Sword, you could still get that classic sword and fight with that. You could still get that classic shield and fight with that. So fans, I think, somewhat reasonably were upset that there was basically a content wall behind a physical purchase, that they couldn't decide that just because they, you know, they wanted these things in real life, they were willing to buy them, but they couldn't find them. They couldn't get them. And they couldn't then get that content within the game either. So yeah, there was basically that within all the amiibos, but then mm-hmm. there was also these capabilities within external amiibos. Uh, like if you had a Mario from the Super Smash Brothers series, you could just get random items within the game. Like maybe it's yeah. more fish, maybe it's more weapons or things like that. So there were advantages given to people who were able to get the amiibos. There were special advantages given to people who were able to get Legend of Zelda Amiibos specifically going back to the Super Smash Brothers series, getting that original SSB link mm-hmm. and things like that, that original SSB Zelda as well. And I think it's so smart to do something like that, because like you said, if you're an Amiibo collector and you're like, well, I only have Super Smash Bros. once, like, oh, you can still use like your Mario, your Bowser, like it's an Amiibo, you'll get a chest that drops rupees weapons you know whatever you'll still get some stuff but you won't get the very special edition things for those specific ones so at least rewarded you for having them right and uh, you know like i said people i think got a little bit frustrated at the time just because it was so hard to get mm-hmm. those legend of zelda amiibos and you didn't necessarily know ahead of time that they were going to do something like this and so I'm I'm definitely in support of them in the future providing opportunities for players to still have those outfits, those unique outfits mm-hmm. that they want to get. If they want to have the Ocarina of Time one, they should be able to get that somehow. Yeah. I also think you don't need all of them. So. No, because a lot of them I know were more cosmetic than anything, and a lot of them had the same stats. It was Correct. just you looked and felt more like that game was part of breath of the wild now 
Correct. Yeah. So it, it didn't matter if you got the original outfit from the 86 version, mm-hmm. the little 8-bit Amiibo, or if you got the one from Ocarina of Time, Skyward Sword, whatever. The stats were going to be the same. It was just about what games you wanted to prefer. It was more intended, I think, to be a callback to people who had played those titles. than Exactly. A and, and, a, and a reason to pay off your collection and a reason to kind of get you in there. So right. I think it's smart. And we're going to break a bit more of that down in gameplay and how that kind of worked with it. Because, you know, as we said, it's a nonlinear story driven game a la Skyrim um, that was totally rebuilt in this new physics engine. And within that, it also integrates a chemistry engine that defines the physical properties of most objects and governs how they interact with the player and one another. For example, during thunderstorms, metal objects will attract powerful lightning strikes. During a storm, therefore, a player must be careful not to wear any metal, but you can use it to your advantage by throwing like a claymore at some enemies. The lightning bolt will strike that claymore, hitting the enemies around it. These design approaches resulted in a generally unstructured and interactive world that rewards experimentation and allows for nonlinear completion of the story you know even to draw it in a bit more you can use like a wooden shield to block arrows and actually collect those arrows and this boils into another key gameplay element which is weapon and shield degradation unlike other zelda games weapons and shields degrade through use many items have multiple uses Wooden weapons can light fires. Wooden shields, as I said, can in block incoming enemy arrows. And shields can be made to use makeshift snowboards, so like fly down mountains. Whether there be snow, whether there be lava, it works for either. Players can obtain <laughs> food and materials for elixirs from hunting animals, gathering wild fruit, or collecting parts of defeated enemies. By cooking combinations of food or materials, the player can create meals and elixirs that can replenish Link's health and stamina, or provide temporary status bonuses that increase strength or resistance to heat or cold or increased additional hearts or stamina. The, the combinations were so cool because they're, like you had said with um, the intro, there's not a guide per se. It's just kind of like do your thing and figure it out. And that's how cooking and elixirs and food was. You just threw some stuff in a pot, it cooked, and then you could be like, okay, that combination worked really well. or that was terrible. And you had to kind of figure that out along the way as you just threw stuff into a pot to figure out what it did. Yeah, the game tries to set you up a little bit to say, hey, there are going to be these items there. You can cook and make, and it'll protect you from the cold for a real-life period of time, five minutes, mm-hmm. something like that. There is certain clothing that you can get that's going to protect you from the, from the cold. There's going yep. to be certain recipes that give you more health or whatever else. But for the most part after that, yeah, you're, you're a hundred percent on your own. Like just figure it out. And if anybody played the game, like I did, basically it was like, let me throw five of the same meat into the pot and give me as many hearts as possible. And I'll just wear clothes to protect from the heat or the cold or whatever else. Exactly. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. 
However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. So an important tool in Link's arsenal is the Sheikah Slate, which can be used to mark waypoints on the in-game map, take pictures of materials, creatures, enemies. It's basically there as your real like link interactive waypoint Mm -hmm. it's it's there to link the the character to a pause menu exactly and so you can store pictures from that in an in-game compendium and that can be used to locate items later the sheikah slate also gives the player the ability to create remote bombs manipulate metal objects form ice blocks and temporarily stop objects in time. In combat, players can lock onto targets for more precise attacks, while certain button combinations allow for advanced offense and defense. Players may also defeat enemies without weapons, such as by rolling boulders off cliffs into enemy camps. And I remember doing that quite a lot, and usually I was really bad mm-hmm. at it. But <laughs> usually besides missed, exploration, but cool. <laughs> yeah, usually you would miss, but. And they would like freak out a little bit and you're like, oh man, well, okay, I guess I'm just going <laughs> to have to go and kill you guys the old fashioned way. Not, <laughs> not like uh, a Looney Tunes way. Yeah. Unfortunately, didn't work out Looney Tunes style. Got to go just beat them down style. <laughs> Besides exploration, players can undergo quests or challenges to obtain certain benefits. Activating towers and shrines will add waypoints to the map that the player can warp to at any time. Activating towers also adds territories to the map, although location names are not added until the player explores that area. Dotted throughout Hyrule are shrines that contain challenges ranging from puzzles to battles, and clearing shrines earns spirit orbs, and once you earn four of those orbs, you're able, as you learn in the tutorial on the plateau, you can spend it toward health or stamina and those things can max out, and there's a, mm-hmm. a particular balance. It just depends on how you want to play. If you're more combat-oriented, maybe you spend more of those spirit orbs on health. And if you're more like, I want to run away as fast as possible, then you spend it on your stamina. There you go. When Link has at least 13 hearts, he can reclaim the Master Sword in the Korok Forest. The Master Sword is the only unbreakable weapon in the game. However, it can run out of energy after an extended use, requiring a 10-minute real-time recharge. Scattered across Hyrule are small puzzles that reveal Korok seeds, which can be traded to expand inventory size for weapons, shields, and bows. Town service hotspots for quests, side quests, and shops selling materials and clothing. Hikers and other travelers offer side quests, hints, or conversation. And additionally, players can scan the amiibo figures like we spoke about before to summon items. You can call Link's horse Ipana from previous Zelda games if you have the Super Smash Brothers version of Link. 
Or if you have the Wolf Link amiibo from Twilight Princess, you can get a Wolf Companion. And one of the things that was really cool about that one in particular is that if you had played Twilight Princess and you had saved data to that particular amiibo, the amount of hearts that that Wolf would have that followed you in-game would increase. So if you did not play that game, it would be like three hearts. And you can still have the Wolf there, and it'll help you. It'll attack enemies. But if you had played through Twilight Princess, it would carry the same amount of hearts that you had earned within that game. That's super cool. I like that. Now let's get dramatic for a minute. Let's get uh, let's get theatrical. Some might say, and let's talk about the story because in Zelda, there's always a story that I think people just kind of glance over. I think it's just more of like, okay, <laughs> kill Ganon, like got it. But it's a bit one, of a given. It's a bit of a given, but this one being kind of the end of the Zelda series has this really interesting buildup and has an interesting theory behind a lot of it. I mean, there's been YouTube videos that have broken it down, but we're going to lightly dust the surface of this just to give you an idea on what it is. So Breath of the Wild takes place at the end of the Zelda timeline in the Kingdom of Hyrule. 10,000 years before the beginning of the game, the ancient Sheikah race had developed Hyrule into an advanced civilization protected by four enormous animalistic machines called the Divine Beasts and an army of autonomous weapons called Guardians. When the evil Calamity Ganon appeared and threatened Hyrule, four great warriors were given the title of Champion, and each piloted one of the Divine Beasts to weaken Ganon, while the princess, with the blood of the goddess and her appointed knight, fought and defeated him by sealing him away. 10,000 years later, the Kingdom of Hyrule had since regressed to a medieval state. Reading their ancestors' prophecies, the Hylians recognized the signs of Ganon's return and excavated surrounding areas to uncover the divine beasts and guardians. During this time, Princess Zelda trained vigorously to awaken the sealing magic needed to defeat Ganon while trying to maintain her personal research. In the meantime, a knight was appointed to her, that being Link, who was chosen due to his ability to wield the Master Sword, also known as the Sword that Seals the Dark. The champions of Hyrule's races, Daruk, warrior of the mountainous Goron, Mipha, princess of the aquatic Zora, Rivali, archer of the bird-like Rido, and Urbosa, chief of the desert-dwelling Gerudo, assembled to pilot the divine beasts, which were Varudanya, Varuda, Vameto, and Vanaboris, respectively, while the current Zelda and Link battled Ganon. However, Ganon possessed the Guardians and Divine Beasts, turning them against Hyrule. King Roam and the champions were killed, the castle town was destroyed, and Link was gravely wounded while defending the Hyrulean army's only remaining base, Fort Hateno. Zelda took Link to safety for him to heal, hid the Master Sword in the Lost Woods under protection from the Great Deku Tree, and used her magic to seal herself and Ganon in Hyrule Castle. This cataclysmic tragedy came to be known through the ages as the Great Calamity. A hundred years after being placed in a healing chamber in the Shrine of Resurrection, Link awakens in a now-ravaged Hyrule. He meets an old man who reveals himself as the lingering spirit of King Rome, and Rome explains that Ganon, sealed in Hyrule Castle, has grown strong again, and pleads for Link to defeat Ganon before he breaks free and destroys the world. 
Link travels across Hyrule, returning to locations from his past and regaining his memories. With the help of the Hyrulean races, he boards the four divine beasts and purges them of Ganon's monsters, releasing the spirits of Hyrule's former champions and allowing them to pilot the divine beasts once again. After obtaining the Master Sword from the Lost Woods, Link enters Hyrule Castle and defeats Ganon with the help of the Divine Beast and Zelda's Bow of Light. Zelda seals Ganon away, restoring peace and allowing the spirits of King Rohan and the champions to depart to the afterlife. Sensing their presence, Link and Zelda smile fondly. If players have found all 13 memories in the quest Captured Memories, they unlocked a secret ending in which Zelda realizes that Hyrule must be rebuilt and that she and Link must begin the process themselves. As Link and Zelda survey Hyrule and embark to rebuild their world, the princess confides that she may no longer possess any supernatural power, yet still she has happily come to terms with it. And so, a lot of that story, um, I guess that you would consider canon, is optional within the game. You don't have to go across Hyrule. You don't have to activate all four of the divine Mm -hmm. beasts you don't have to get the master sword if you don't want to all these things eventually make the game a lot easier as you go along and you uncover a lot more mysteries and you start to understand a little bit more of the lore and what's happened to hyrule but you don't have to do that stuff and so that's sort of where this game got a little bit more back to its roots where all these games sort of center around the the Triforce and the three that the three characters that want to control them are sort of destined to control them. But this one, you don't necessarily have to have all that help, which I think made the game a little bit more interesting in its approach. Well, it really did because, like you said, you can explore as much as you want. There, there, there are characters that like say, "Hey, you should probably check out this area." I've heard X, Y, Z, you know, something along those lines. And you can, or like you can be like, hey, that castle's super goopy. Let me go to the goop castle and just see what's in it. And then you end up fighting Calamity Ganon. There's just so much to it. And not only that, I don't want to spoil it for players that haven't played. Because not only was the intro a very much Breath of the Wild, where you're like, you're taken aback. There are... Some mythical beasts, I'll just say. I don't want to, not our, not the ones we're riding on, but some that don't really have any explanation in the game, but appear and appear with a music cue. And when you see them, it's astounding. It's, 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 it's just play it. I'm not going to spoil it because it's a thing I'm glad was not spoiled for me as a thing. And just being able to see this thing and hear this music cue and look and be like in awe of it was really the first time I've ever had that with a creature or character that is not even close to being a part of anything. It's, it's there for a purpose that can be totally skippable, but is amazing to see these different beasts. I'm just going to say, to not spoil anything, that's in there. Yeah, it's definitely special. But when you play a game like this for the first time and there's not an explanation for seeing something like that Uh, to me it's kind of akin to seeing a shiny in pokemon Mm -hmm. you know it's like oh i'm 
it's this is cool and special or finding one of the legendary pokemon for the first time something like that where you just yes you see something just kind of naturally appear in the world and you can figure out later how to engage in those encounters and things like that but when you're able to just sort of like play the game and experience it naturally it 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 makes everything a lot more magical and fun yeah, and I know a couple people that haven't played it yet, and I just purchased some copies because they had a pretty good sale for Black Friday a while mm. back, so I bought some copies. Mm. But if you haven't played it, recommend checking it out. You can usually find it for like 30 US dollars, typically, like used at places. Yeah, Some are new, but check it out, play that. But let's jump over to what also makes this magical, because I just brought up like how so much of the music changes in these different areas and there's different cues that are hit. And that's the music and sound. The original score was composed by Manaka Katokoa and Yasuke Iwata under direction from Hajime Wakai. Karaoka and Waki had previously worked on the Zelda titles such as Spirit Tracks and Wind Waker. So you know you're getting some tasty jams coming into this game. The soundtrack utilizes ambient music and sounds in lieu of the large, sweeping ensembles that graced previous games in the series. Wakai felt this added authenticity to the environments and meant new challenges for the sound design team, and that the result would be a slow-building excitement for players. Most of the soundtrack was written and performed on the piano, but Wakai had reservations about this simply because they hadn't really used piano too much in the series. You know. You've always had those orchestral big hits going in, and this was just so much more toned down and ruminating with it. Players will likely notice that the game's leitmotifs are borrowed from previous entries in the series. For example, the stable theme has a recorder that plays a flourished version of the melody for Epona's song, which was used to call the iconic horse in the Ocarina of Time. Zelda's Lullaby, first established in A Link from the Past, is a recurring theme within her limited appearances. Breath of the Wild's main theme borrows from melodies established in the original Legend of Zelda, a consistency throughout the long-running series, and Wakai felt the decision to use a piano gave these old themes a fresh revival. At one point, Wakai was collecting feedback for the soundtrack to present to Koji Kondo, the longtime sound director for the series, and found that one in four tracks contained melodies from previous games. The team was surprised at how well they held up with this new direction. The soundtrack utilizes empty spaces that create a partial atmosphere, reflective of Hyrule's current overall state. Like in previous titles, certain themes are triggered by encounters in areas, but because Breath of the Wild emphasizes its open world, a less engaging soundtrack was designed to carry players through the world with familiarity, but not to the point of exhaustion. The designers were careful to plan around something as simple as Link's footsteps because they knew the sound would be a near constant for the player. They continued this level of detail to other parts of the world, even creating a sound for when a bacoblin picks its nose, which was actually just a recording of a finger being squished around in a wet cloth. <laughs> Music has also changed slightly depending on the in-game time of day, although Wakai admits players would have to pay particular attention to the music in order to notice. At night, the tempo slows and certain instruments drop out while they slowly pick back up and are re-added as the game returns today. So it's just these little details that I think, once you have them pointed out to you, they're very obvious. Mm -hmm. 
But if you don't have them pointed out, it's just a great job of creating an atmosphere within sound design. I think they did a really great job with this game. And this is just another attention to detail that they had going to the simple things of like lightning strikes, metal weapons, arrows sticking wooden shields. These little things of like, we're going to like take it down at night and then slowly build it back up. And knowing that players might not hear that, because I'm going to be 1000% honest, I didn't know the shield thing. Because like, as soon as I got rid of wooden shields, I'm like, I'm never using that again. Well, you got to keep at least one so you don't get electrocuted, man. No, I just unequipped everything and just ran around. (laughs) (laughs) But like to have those things is just so interesting and just such a smart element to have as part of it that you can't go wrong when you have this this super finite amount of detail that is just so minuscule that makes it so much better. And allowing the space within, especially the main theme while you're out in the open world, allowing that space, recognizing that there's going to be essentially uh, an auto ambience because of the wind and because of the footsteps and just allowing all that to breathe is a really smart sound design choice in my opinion Mm -hmm. it's if we had a game that was constantly just overwhelming us with zelda themes like uh, what might have existed within top-down games uh, in the zelda series where you go into a certain world and there's a very particular theme for that part of the forest or that Mm -hmm. part of the world if we were constantly being hit with that stuff and it was jarring you know once you walk into a wooded area now all of a sudden you're hit with some kind of wood theme i think it would it would just get to a point where you're like okay this is taking me out of the game like i walked into the woods now i've got this it's similar to i'm gonna make another pokemon comparison when you go to a new route on yep. one of those games. Then the music changes all of a sudden. You go into a town. Now you've got new music. You could walk up and down, back and forth, screen by screen, and have that shift and have two completely different pieces of music play. This did a great job of just having one overall overarching type of music that keeps you within the game. And you're seeing a lot of games and sound designers get into that where you have, for the most part, an overall theme that let's say you go to a fire area it adds a little like maybe electric guitar or like a little hard hitting thing you go to water area it's much more violin or flute but on the same song it's just it's just adding these different layers that stay along the same thing instead of you being like do 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 and then just heavy metal hits when you're in fire and you're like that's very abrupt and changing and it made sense when you had games that loaded different areas like clearly like i had a loading screen now i'm in fire area you can have that shift and not have that much of a jarring perspective versus open world, nothing changes but your location. And then the music just instantly cuts. It, 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 you have to have it in the right realm of it. So let's hop over to the DLC. On June 30th, 2017, Nintendo released a season pass for two bundled downloadable content packages, the Master Trials and the Champion's Ballad. The Master Trials adds gameplay modes, features, and items, and a Trial of the Sword Challenge, where the player faces three trials consisting of 12, 16, and 23 rooms, respectively. Each room is full of enemies which the player must defeat before proceeding, and every room must be completed before the player can claim their reward. 
The player begins with no equipment and will lose all progress if they receive a game over. At the end of each trial, the player's Master Sword has its attack power upgraded by 10 points and the blue sheen of the blade grows slightly. And I remember doing that. It's very difficult, very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Even if you're a, a good player of Breath of the Wild, it is extremely challenging because you get so used to, I think, the protection that the armor provides. Me, as someone who had the amiibo content as well, you know, was sort of, I, I didn't realize how much of a crutch it was for me because you literally go into these trials without anything. You're naked. Oh, wow. And you have to, from the ground up, build an inventory build uh weapons you have to decide from room to room is this going to be a weapon that is important to me enough to keep within the amount of slots that i have is this going to be a weapon that if i lose this in this room is it going to be worth it and once you decide to make those decisions and you go into the next room you're kind of stuck with what you got and if you die you die and you got to start all over so that's that's actually really cool like you said like having a more challenging mode if you kind of max everything like oh i just one swipe everything nothing can hit me and you're like oh now i'm back to this yeah no it was uh, definitely a very unique concept i think for the zelda series and uh, mm-hmm. it is it is a good challenge i cannot even begin to imagine doing that in the master mode which is already ridiculously <laughs> hard as it stands but mm-hmm. uh, i'm sure there's someone out there who's better at the game than me So by the end of the third trial, the Master Sword will have doubled in attack power and it'll glow blue. The pack also added an option to play the game at a higher difficulty level called the Master Mode, which adds faster rank leveling and raises the ranks of enemies by one. The enemies are more perceptive when Link sneaks near them and slowly regenerate health in battle. New floating platforms throughout the land offer enemies to battle and treasure as a reward. The Hero's Path feature draws the player's path on the game's map, and it's designed to help players determine places that they have not visited. The player can also find the Hidden Travel Medallion to save Link's current position as a single waypoint to which the player can transport Link at any time. New items for this included the Korok Mask, which alerts the player when a Korok is nearby, and other themed cosmetics related to previous Zelda games. The Champion's Ballad was released on December 7th, 2017. It added a new dungeon, additional story content, new gear, and additional challenges, as well as the Master Cycle Zero, a motorcycle-like vehicle that Link can ride upon completing the quest line. A complete edition containing all DLC on the game card was released in Japan on October 8th, 2021. We have not seen that in the United States or outside of Japan at all yet. Mm-hmm. But the game is cheap enough now, 30 US dollars uh, generally on sale, probably 40 mm-hmm. regular, where you could get that extra content probably for the original price of the full game. Yeah, so I mean, you, you can still get it all out there, no big deal. You know, Japan's just hoarding the cool stuff, but it's, you know, we're not better. They do what they do. <laughs> it's just what it and is. And it be. It be. So yeah, so that brings us to kind of how did this game do? What did the general mass, the general pop think of it? Breath of the Wild was released to critical acclaim, with many calling the game a masterpiece and one of the greatest video games of all time. 
On Metacritic, Breath of the Wild was the highest rated game of 2017 and holds the largest number of perfect reviews of any game from any year. The open world gameplay received praise. Jose Otero of IGN described it as, quote, a masterclass in open world design and a wonderful sandbox full of mystery, dangling dozens upon dozens of tantalizing things in front of you that just beg to be explored. GameSpot called it the most impressive game Nintendo had made, writing that it, quote, takes designs and mechanics perfected in other games and reworks them for its own purposes to create something wholly new, but also something that still feels quintessentially like a Zelda game. It's both a return to form and a leap into uncharted territory, and it exceeds expectations on both fronts. Now, YouTube reviewer Jim Sterling was more critical than most, giving Breath of the Wild a 7 out of 10. They criticized the difficulty, weapon durability, and level design, but praised the open world and variety of content. Other criticism focused on the unstable frame rate and the low resolution of 900p. Updates addressed some of these problems later on and made it more consistent. And like with any game, you may have some instability on different devices, on how the card was produced. So you just release an update, get it fixed quick. You know, in defense of, of Jim Sterling, this game played very differently on the dock versus the handheld. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of frame rate issues, especially in the handheld version versus the docked edition. And it, it doesn't hold up necessarily to the same standards as other video games that we see now, where we're seeing the sure. 4K support. And we're seeing like very advanced graphics. It uh, Nintendo's just I don't their hardware is not capable. Their design is an intent on that. They they try and wow you in other aspects of the game. Mm-hmm. Breath of the Wild broke sales records for a Nintendo launch game in multiple regions. In Japan, the Switch and Wii U versions sold a combined two hundred thirty thousand copies in the first week of release with the Switch version becoming the top-selling game released that week. Nintendo reported that Breath of the Wild sold more than 1 million copies in the U.S. that month, 925,000 of which were for Switch, a 100% attach rate, as we said before. In April 2017, Nintendo reported it had sold 3.84 million copies of Breath of the Wild worldwide by the end of March, 1.08 million for Wii U, and 2.76 million for the Switch, surpassing the Switch's global sales of 2.74 million for the same period. Nintendo president Tatsumi Kimishima said that the attach rate of Breath of the Wild to the Switch was unprecedented. By March 2019, the game sold 14.27 million copies worldwide, 12.77 on the Switch, and 1.61 on the Wii U, making Breath of the Wild the best-selling game in the franchise. Total sales for the Switch version reached 25.8 million by December 2021. So, again, a lot of numbers at you, but it is insane in such a short period of time how quickly this game sold and how well it did. Nintendo is one of those companies that puts out hardware that's pretty good, and the Switch was really cool, Mm -hmm. but when you get a game like this that attaches to it immediately, it sells, and they know how to do that. Very quickly, the Switch surpassed the sales for the Wii U. You know, there Mm -hmm. were so many issues 
with the Wii U, it was obviously more of a stepping stone to what the Switch ultimately became. But yep. having a game like this and having the Switch console, absolutely. I mean, I think Breath of the Wild is a large part of the Switch's success. Absolutely. Again, with Mario Odyssey, like those two titles blew not only their own franchise out of the water, it blew out of the water anything that was happening in that time period, like 2017-ish. It just did. And, you know, you see how the Wii U struggled. Not only was it just a kind of clunky hardware, but it also really didn't have great release titles for it. It was just kind of this in-between of the Wii and the Switch that tested out some features of a screen and tried to, like, bring mobile to like handheld mobile to the console but it definitely like i think helped iron out what the switch would be for sure and i think we could do a whole episode on wii u and and its Mm -hmm. failures and advantages i had a lot of fun playing the party games but when there's one person holding the pad and the rest have to use wii remotes and all that stuff it's i don't know not it was a great prototype. <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah. It was a great prototype that was going to be the Switch. Basically just the the world's largest beta. Yeah, pretty much. It was the, the, the largest prototype to reach out to an audience and be like, I'm glad you guys bought this thing. Anyway, here's the better thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so shortly after Breath of the Wilds released, journalists and video game industry figures discussed how it would influence future open world games and the Zelda series. Benjamin Plitch, designer of Assassin's Creed Unity and For Honor, said that he believed developers would take inspiration from its focus on experimental gameplay, and PC Gamer wrote that the game, quote, set a standard the rest of the genre should live by. In the years since its release, multiple games and developers have cited Breath of the Wild as an inspiration. These include Genshin Impact, Ghost of Tsushima, Immortals Phoenix Rising, Telling Lies, and Halo Infinite. Similarities have also been noted between Breath of the Wild and other open-world titles since its launch, including Pokemon Legends Arceus, Sonic Frontiers, and Horizon Forbidden West. According to Digital Trends, Breath of the Wild has become a popular point of comparison among open-world games, quote, approaching its the Dark Souls of levels of cliché. And you definitely hear that in a lot of video game reviews, whereas like, you know, Dark Souls being the hard game for true gamers, obviously. Other games tried to emulate it. (laughs) Hashtag true gamers. But other games would try to emulate it. And now others are doing the same with Breath of the Wild becoming it's the Breath of the Wild version of this. Right. And it's very interesting to see. Now, now I want to touch real quick and jump into some other points to look at or some other videos to watch that tap into modding the game or challenges in the game. And two YouTubers and streamers to look at are Point Crow and Small Ant, who have done challenges of like ramping the difficulty at max and making every enemy the hardest enemy it can be, mm-hmm. as well as like doubling its health. Guardians shoot constantly, like the trailer. Oh, man. And just various other really cool challenges that are in there, like beating the whole game with a stick, you know, insane stuff so like there's plenty of really cool content out there if you've like made your way through the game and want to see more check out those two that have done ridiculous things and it's pretty fun to watch it sounds cool and i have a lot of appreciation for people who have taken on those additional challenges within breath of the wild Mm -hmm. because as great as this game is it is 
arguable that it's easy, especially toward the end, once you've sure. done all the other hard things ahead of time. So for people to take it upon themselves to try and defeat this game in as many unique ways as possible, I think is probably the, the, the best thing that Nintendo could have asked for. There was the whole reason that they designed the game the way that they did. And this, to me, is like the feeling of when you have speedrunners doing Mario 64 or Ocarina of Time. I get that same feel when they do Mario Odyssey and Breath of the Wild now, where it is that somewhat nonlinear in both aspects of the game and trying to do it as quick as possible and seeing these amazing skips or just these amazing things you didn't know about, like in Breath of the Wild, uh, Boomy Zoomies, which is basically dropping a bomb, freeze framing, taking your shield out, dropping another bomb igniting the other bomb that was there and you basically just fly across the screen like it's amazing little <laughs> dumb hacky things that are these weird clip things that shouldn't happen it's so cool to see like community members find that yeah and i love watching people try and do these dungeons where they they just mm -hmm. try and do them in the most bizarre ways that they possibly can like yeah i do see that i can get this i could finish this puzzle basically by like going through the maze but let me do the bomb launching technique and I'm going to launch myself over to the platform yep. and be done. And the game exactly. doesn't punish you for something like that. It's like, yes, good job, you crazy individual. You could have just walked <laughs> around here, but instead you decided to blow yourself up. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. <laughs> it's so un-Nintendo of them. I feel like that's why yep. I love it so much because Nintendo, I think... They really, especially in the creative community, frown upon like, like fan made projects and and yes. doing things in a way that they don't intend. And then for whatever reason, they built Breath of the Wild and they were like, eh, do whatever you want. I don't care. Yeah, go for it. Have a good time. <laughs> the game's success sparked increased interest in the Wii U emulator Simu as the Simu developers rapidly updated the software to run the game at a steady frame rate within weeks of release. In September 2020, Nintendo announced Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity, a hack-and-slash game in the style of the Dynasty Warriors series, following 2014's Hyrule Warriors. Age of Calamity is a spin-off of Breath of the Wild, with the story set in the 100 years before, so before Link is in this long nap coma. Mm -hmm. The game was released on November 20th, 2020 on the Nintendo Switch. An untitled sequel was announced at E3 2019. It was conceived during planning for Breath of the Wild's DLC. And the team came up with too many ideas, some of which could not be implemented due to the technical constraints, so they decided to use their ideas for a new game. According to Ayanuma, the sequel will build atop the original's world with a new story and gameplay elements and is inspired in part by Red Dead Redemption 2. Fujibayashi will reprise his role as director. It was announced at E3 2021 that the game would be released in 2022, and that players will be able to explore the sky of Hyrule with new mechanics. And so when I hear the Red Dead Redemption 2 comparisons, yeah. that's mm -hmm. very interesting. Am I going to be more of a thief now? Can I be evil? Can I be Shadow Link? Am, or am I? is it just going to be me having to operate very slowly all the time so that I don't accidentally punch now, I, someone in the face? I believe Navi reprises her role, but just says, Believe me, Link, I have a plan. <laughs> and I think that's the entire game. 
<laughs> I think that's what we're going to see. Navi feeds Link to the crocodiles. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a perfect thing. So yeah, so that was our coverage of Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild with an exciting sequel, hopefully, fingers crossed, coming out later this year. Um, you know, possibly dealing with this thing that's been going on the last couple of years. We'll see how that has really affected development, but hopefully it stays on track. If it follows Red Dead Redemption and Rockstar's path, we're not going to see this game for 10 years and three consoles <laughs> later. Yeah, so hopefully it is this year. We will see it. But again, I'm very excited about this one. So Derek, we all know what both of us are going to say, but go ahead and tell the people what did you think of it and why did we choose it? Baby, this game is a 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. I love Breath of the Wild so much. If you look at my Switch history, there are approximately 200 plus hours put into this game. It's a ridiculous amount of time. When I played this game on Switch, it was pretty much the only game that I had from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. I did every dungeon, every quest, everything that I could. I could not get enough of this game. What I love about what the Zelda series has been doing since its inception. I I know that they kind of went back to their roots, but I think what they do a lot better now is they've made these games more approachable and more beatable because there's a big, big difference between like Ocarina of Time where I had to bomb a random tree to discover a heart in a particular area where you're you're in an area where you have guides and you have ideas. Mm -hmm. And once you've tried something that works, you do it again. And maybe you find success that way. I feel like this game did enough to lead you on the correct path while also giving you the freedom to basically do whatever you wanted. And the fighting is a lot of fun. I feel like it's relatively intuitive to do backflips and then charge and fight. It's not frustrating at all. Yo, yeah. I feel like they did a great job expanding on Zelda lore. You know, they established that timeline within Skyward Sword and then Breath of the Wild comes out and they didn't just abandon that idea to say that, okay, well, now we've established this lore. You guys can see this official timeline and kind of get an idea of where you're at in terms of particular instances of end results of games you know if link succeeded if link failed this is where you are this is the scenario in this game you get to see sort of the end game and i really love that they built just on skyward sword because that's another one of my favorite games of all time so uh, maybe i'm a little biased in that respect because If you've listened to the Skyward Sword episode, you already know that that's one of my favorite games. It was huge and impactful for the Mm -hmm. Wii as a whole, and I think impactful for this game. To have Link, you know, Legend of Zelda, like, build two consoles, essentially, is huge. And in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like as much as Mario is, quote, the flagship character, like, it's really Link. It's really Zelda. This game is just so impactful to Nintendo and so approachable by people who like Nintendo games, who like RPGs, who like action adventures. I feel like Zelda just constantly hits all the marks, and I don't have a lot of complaints about it. 
So 10 out of 10. I love Breath of the Wild. How about you? Yeah, I I have to agree with that. And Nintendo, especially in the Legend of Zelda series, has really tried to adapt to a more adult audience in a way. Because everyone always complains if you're like a fan of like, if you're like a Call of Duty player, you're like, I'm not a Nintendo. I'm, I'm a shooter thing. I'm do this, this, that. It really brought a, a, along like harder gameplay, challenges, like secrets, so much stuff to explore that wasn't handholding, that wasn't just something that was like, oh, okay, I'm just in and out of it. See you later. It did so well with that and just so many fun things to explore. And like watching these streamers now and seeing so much stuff I've missed. I put a lot of hours into this game and I'm like, I have never seen that. I thought I explored everything. Apparently, I did not. So that was always a really cool thing. The only caveat or complaint I really have is that when you've done so much in the game and you're so overpowered, that last Ganon fight is really nothing. When it boils down to it, like you're 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 so overpowered, and but it does it does feel good. It feels like you are Link, like you're here. You've defeated all these other different calamity ganon things that he had out there these different uh beasts that he was controlling it does have a and little so, bit of a fable two ending mm-hmm. to it, where it it's... yeah and, and i just felt like lionel's and some of these other ones were harder than the ganon fight oh that first lionel you gotta fight on the cliff oh yeah and get, like that's the first introduction to it it's very much like skyrim giant that just launches you in the air oh, it's the like this enemy is... troll yep it's just very hard and it's like there and it's, it's really cool to experience that and and this game has just so many minute details that many casual players probably never really experienced or ever like took advantage of like arrows in the wooden shield or knowing what combinations to make a health potion that does a full restore plus five gold hearts mm-hmm. you know without knowing those things or experimenting or understanding it it's it's tough and and for a game to allow like we had talked about to complete a challenge or complete something that has a predetermined route per se, but to go about it however you want, like like uh, Castle Hyrule, mm-hmm. there's so many false doors or like just like a, a, a food hall that has nothing to do with it, but you can explore it. There's going to be maybe secret items in there or harder enemies that drop really cool loot that you can skip entirely. And you may not have ever even seen if you've played it through, but there's so much cool stuff there. And it is the dark souls of the new games. It is going to be, look at all these games that have added this stamina wheel, that climb, that have a combat system like it, that have an exploration system like it, or a story bound, you know, of ease like it. And we'll keep seeing games that produce like that. And I'm very excited because it's a great platform to jump off of with. it. And so I 100% agree with you. And, you know, I give this game a 10 out of 10. There's not it's not to say that I don't also have complaints about the game, but I'm like, sure. When I think about it, I'm like, how much better can a game get? There's not a game to me that I've played that even if I give a 10 out of 10 review, like are there moments in breath of the wild where I'm frustrated because I'm climbing mm-hmm. up a cliffside and the rain comes and I'm like, man, like this happens far too frequently. And I get frustrated by something like that. As far as games go within the context of when it was released, you know, it, to me, it really is like a perfect game. 
just like Ocarina of Time was a perfect game in 1998. Yep. So yeah, and that's that's the exact comparison I was going to make. Same thing with Odyssey and, and Mario 64. That for me was like they've experimented all throughout these years, and like you know, Mario Sunshine was a great spinoff. Um, all of the galaxies, and a lot of people like them. I never really liked the Wii controls with them, but they did a lot of stuff. But to get that feeling back, that nostalgic, childlike feeling of playing it when we were a kid and then playing it now, those two have kind of come full circle for me. So, yeah, I think it's been great. That's been our coverage of it. It's fantastic. And as always, there's some beautiful people behind the scenes working on it. Absolutely, man. Some great stuff happening behind the scenes. Really appreciate our research assistance provided by Evan Barr, as well as our new cover art provided by Aaron Shattuck. Let us know what you think about that. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, beautiful people. We're all beautiful people. Um, there's some people we need to thank, and that's obviously our patrons who have been with us all throughout this, have made this podcast still possible, and we've got some real cool stuff coming up for you. Um, we've been doing our D&D campaign with a couple of you for a while, which has been awesome. We've got some new exclusives, some new merch, some new cool stuff rolling down the pipeline. So check it out. And we want to thank those people today with Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Nick Hyman, Mick Chief, Climbing Spork, and Mr. 1898. And if you're interested, hit up patreon.com slash finish the fight, and that'll take you to us. If you haven't yet, please do join our Discord. We also have an Instagram, a Twitter account. That Discord in particular, Alex and I are always hanging out, having a lot of fun, and we'd love to see you guys there. And one thing that we're going to start doing to get you guys involved, because, you know, we see you, we see you not participating, is we're going to start answering some questions at the end of the episode. Whether it's game-related, whether it's, you know, we'll kind of handpick those and quantify them and have some fun with them. So if you have any questions, Instagram, Twitter, Discord, even on Patreon, send them our way, and then we'll, uh, we'll do some answers. On that note, one of the questions that we were recently received was, why is Alex so handsome? And I don't know how to answer it. He's a beautiful man, but... Well, we'll agree to disagree on some of those points, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, send those questions in. All that gaming knowledge that you might know or that we can share with you, pass that along. And if you want, check out some of our sweet merch over on our Etsy linked below. Um, as well as us possibly on Twitch, possibly not, over at twitch.tv slash sourman70 and twitch.tv slash thebakerman247247. So hit us up on those and uh, we'll give you some cool stuff. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review. It helps us out a lot and we love to hear from you. And again, let us know what you think. Is Breath of the Wild the greatest action-adventure platformer game out there? Or is there something better? No. Let us know. Oh, no, there's not. As always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. <laughs>